Well, thanks so much to uh, Toby and the team. Uh, it's just a great privilege to be down here in Sydney. It's actually drier here than my home, hometown. My wife's sending me photos of our pool just getting fuller and fuller. And she said, how do I backwash to make sure that it doesn't overflow while I'm down here? So it's crazy weather at the moment. It's glad everyone could get out. And it's exciting to have this new facility opened, to be just a place that people in Surrey Hills can come to learn about Jesus and to feel the love of God's people, of the Christian community here. So if you're a newcomer here exploring, and what does this building look like from the inside after all these renos and uh and you're willing to come listen to a little bit about jesus i just commend you for that willingness to explore and try and ask some of life's deepest questions because the truth is we all are searching for something and and that's why i wanted to speak to the theme this morning on why bother with god because i was never one of those angry atheist types that's finding religious people and wanting to pick apart their belief system and make them look like idiots in public Uh, i think i was like most of my schoolmates during my teenage years where i just didn't understand why you would care about the god thing Uh, life's pretty good here for the most part in australia we are the 11th happiest country in the world according to the 2018 happiness world report Uh, we got knocked out of the top 10 by those silly nordic countries Uh, if you're wondering which is the happiest place on earth turns out it's not disneyland it's uh, finland but uh, don't ask them because they don't know why uh, they're happy they don't believe that somehow they're the happiest country but but australia's pretty good sun-kissed shores laid-back culture coffee surfing Our quality of life here doesn't make immediate demands for questions of survival. And so a lot of people sort of think, look, I don't really understand the relevance of the whole religious thing. It looks confusing. There's all these different stories. Religion seems a little bit of an awkward fit, like some kind of moral straitjacket. It doesn't look like the pathway to happiness. For the most part, why bother with God? And that apathyism, apathetic towards the God question, is probably our natural religion here in Australia. And I understand that feeling immensely. And so what I want to share this morning, particularly if you're a newcomer, is just a few of the things that led me to believe in God, to become a Christian. In fact, to spend most of my life talking about Jesus and fielding people's questions. Because it was when I finished school and started asking some of life's deepest questions around who we are and why we're here and what we should be aiming for, that someone invited me to read about Jesus. And in interacting particularly with John's Gospel, one of the biographies of Jesus' friends that recounts what he did and what he said and what it meant to them, that I myself came to believe in God, had an experience of God's presence and became a Christian something I've never looked back from, even through many questions and seasons of hardship and darkness and doubt, something I've been profoundly thankful for. So this morning, I'm going to give you three reasons from John's gospel, why bother with God? And the first comes in the first few chapters, actually, and it's, it's on the theme of, of meaning and on the theme of satisfaction. Now, if you're watching movies, if you're listening to the media, if you're hanging out with different friends, if you're reading books, what you'll notice is that everyone is spinning a tale. It's Hollywood and holy people, philosophers and politicians, scientists and sages. Everyone is telling us about how to arrive at this elusive there, whether it's financial success and freedom from the Tony Robbins crowd, uh, whether it's personal individual fulfillment, whether it's deep spiritual enlightenment. Everyone has this thing that they're ultimately aiming for and No one's really stopping to ask whether or not we're all that happy. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a newcomer and you are happy, your external circumstances are fantastic, man, I rejoice with you. That's great. Celebrate those sorts of moments. But I don't see why experiencing good things in life should lead you not to care about God. 
If, after all, the Christian story is true and God made this world and all of the good things that are in it, then our experience of good things should actually want us to be thankful towards God. Uh, imagine my three boys. You, know? you feed them, you play with them, you hug them, you kiss them, you raise them. Blood, sweat, and tears involved in helping keep them alive. And then they turn around and they say, actually, Dad, my life's pretty good. I don't need you. I don't want to talk to you. You're irrelevant to me. That would just seem like an odd thing from the heart of a child towards an earthly father. And the dynamic that the Bible actually speaks about that seems to be part of us as well. That even though there is a God, and somehow many people have this sense of a God consciousness, even if they don't know what to call it, so often we don't glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him. It's like we've just switched off from that potential relationship, which is something that, I guess, in reflection didn't make sense to me. But for a lot of people, they come to realize that happiness itself is actually pretty difficult to sustain. Uh, the psychology journals describe happiness as a state, not a trait. It's driven by external circumstances, and therefore it's fragile, and it rarely lasts. In fact, in a major study that's been done over the last 20 years, it's one of the most longitudinal studies that they've explored, what they uncovered in sociology is the U-shape of happiness. Now, this is a 1.3 million person study across 51 countries. It's almost unmatched in its uh, breadth. And so what they discovered is that if you're sitting here right now and you're in your late teens or early 20s, you are as happy now as you will ever be. <laughs> Sorry to burst that bubble, but from there, it takes somewhat of a nosedive in your mid to late 20s as you start to get jobs and responsibilities and so many challenges in life and relationships and loss and suffering, the pressures of which seem to bottom out around your mid 40s. So if you're sitting here next to someone who's 45 right now, maybe just put your arm around them. I understand. I see you. I know. Because the good news is once you get over that earning your place in your career and children grow up and relationships seem to level out and finances aren't as much of a problem, it starts to bend its way back up again until delirium and uh, health seem to start dissipating with time. Basically, what they've uncovered is that happiness is a very dangerous thing to base your life upon. It's unstable. And for most people, it's relatively unfulfilling. That these momentary experiences of pleasure, of joy, of fun, tend to not sustain a meaningful life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, an ancient book of wisdom that's included in the Old Testament, there's an interview that takes place. And there's an interview with this king-like, sagely figure who has achieved the pinnacle of success here in the world. And he starts recounting all the different avenues through which he tried to find meaning and fulfillment and success and satisfaction. And what he realizes is at the end of his life is they never quite fulfilled him. He talks about his work and the great monuments that he erected, things that would outlast him, one of the ancient wonders of the world. And yet he says you know what, it's not enough. He talks about the wealth that he managed to accumulate. It's like got into the ground level of Bitcoin and earned his way up to mountains of gold. It's like Scrooge McDuck, old school. You could go swimming in this stuff. And yet surrounded by that wealth, it's still not enough. 
He described his sexual experiences and the multitude of relationships, denying himself no desire. And yet, it's not enough. And so he talks about the pursuit of wisdom and learning all of the insight that he could about life so that others would gather at his feet as though the guru, Jedi master, down to the Padawan learners, and still it was not enough. 37 times throughout this book, as he's describing his own experience in light of the time and tragedy that pervades our lives, he uses this Hebrew word, chevel, which is often translated in English Bibles as meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But it's this image behind the word of smoke or a vapor. It's something that looks solid at a distance, something that you could take hold of for yourself, but every time you try and grab it, it slips through your fingers. It's elusive. It's ultimately unfulfilling. And he says, if I try and find meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction in this life, in the material world, it's ultimately like that. And he's kind of left in a pretty bleak picture of meaninglessness. But that's only under the sun. One of the leading modern-day philosophers, Jim Carrey, he put it this way. He said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything that they ever dreamed just to realize it's not the answer. And how often the stories of people who reach the height in their career or in sport or in beauty or in media recognize, man, their lives behind the scenes are anything but the kind of person you ultimately want to be. It's elusive, this pursuit of fulfillment and success and happiness. And this is where Jesus comes onto the scene. And in John's gospel, after a long history in the Christian story of God using physical images to speak of a deeper spiritual hunger and reality, Jesus describes himself as living water in John 4 and John 5 and 6 as the bread of life. Water to satiate these deep thirsts in the human soul, bread to satisfy our deepest hungers. And he begins hinting at this notion that the reason why we're unfulfilled in the material world is because we were made for something more. C.S. Lewis uses this uh, beautiful insight in his book, Mere Christianity. And he describes that every innate desire in humanity is actually met by something in reality. That the hunger that we experience in our bodies, where our tummies rumble when you wake up in the morning, well, that points to the reality of food that you can eat to satisfy that hunger, that thirst that we're parched by when we work out, that points towards the existence of water that can satisfy that thirst. Even our sexual desires point towards the reality of an intimate relationship in which they can be expressed and fulfilled. So what then do we make of this deep hunger that drives all of humanity? The hunger for something more, for meaning, for satisfaction, for purpose, for fulfillment that isn't satisfied by anything in reality. He says, if I find within myself something which nothing in this world can satisfy, perhaps that's evidence that I was made for another world. Jesus says that everything in this world is a good thing, designed by God as a gift to be enjoyed. But because it's not the ultimate thing, and because human beings, men and women, are made for a relationship with God, to love Him and love one another, that nothing and no one can take God's place and satisfy our deepest soul hungers and thirsts. Becoming a Christian, the first reason why you should bother with God, 
changed my whole life. There was a deeper, richer meaning and experience of the spiritual world that was opened up by that. That has had this wonderful dimension of satisfaction, of joy, irrespective of my external circumstances, through good things and bad things, to be carried by this weight of meaning and purpose, satisfaction of experiencing God through it all. It's the first reason why you should bother with God. Because Jesus promises to satisfy us in a way that no one and nothing else can. The second thing I came across in John's Gospel was that Jesus offers answers to life's deepest questions in a way that actually sheds light on reality. One of the most famous anthropologists of the 20th century was a guy by the name of Loren Isley. I know L-O-R-E-N. Sounds more like an elf from Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. But Loren Isley. And this guy was such a gun in his field that he was gifted 36 honorary degrees across his lifetimes by different institutions. He has more degrees next to his name than I have on a thermometer up in Brisbane attached to my house. And he was a secular guy, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in Jesus, wasn't religious in any way, but he made this observation about humans. As he looked right across the world, different cultures, right back through history in his study, he said, man is the cosmic orphan. He is the only creature in the universe who asks questions. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man asks this, who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? These questions of identity and purpose and destiny drives so much of our human experience, and we all live as though a certain set of answers to life's deepest questions is true. And yet all of the competing answers in the swirl of stories, religious and secular, that make up our culture, for a lot of people, they're confused. I don't know who I am. I don't know what it means to be human. I don't know why I'm ultimately here. I don't know where it's all going. And into that fog, into that uncertainty, into that darkness, we kind of stumble through life. But the reality is it's really hard to navigate in the dark. We have three boys, I said, and and none of our kids were good sleepers. And so for the last seven years of my life, multiple times a night, I get awoken by screams or grunts or someone falling out of a bed. And I have to navigate my way through a dark house to find them. Now, I must have not eaten enough carrots when I was growing up. Because my eyes do not seem to adjust to low light conditions. And so I'm quite literally stumbling around and inevitably I'll kick my toe on a piece of furniture or worse, the door that's half ajar and you just do the poof and it does not move and you fall to the floor. It's just a common experience to me. It's hard to navigate in the dark. And Jesus described himself in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 12. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is promising that to step into the Christian story, to come to know who he is and to follow him, is like the sun dawning on your life, that all of a sudden lights up the landscape of reality so that you can make sense of it. And this was the experience of C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of him as the author of the Narnia Tales or some famous work uh, back in the middle of the 20th century in the defense of Christianity. But he made this comment in one of his sermons uh, to the Oxford Socratic Club, Is Theology Poetry? 
He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. For him, it's not just the direct evidence to believe in God or to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be in history, evidence you can explore in the life course. It was the way that the Christian story all of a sudden made sense of the reality around him that he'd been fumbling through previously. C.S. Lewis grew up with some religious story in his family, but became an atheist in his teenage years, walked away from God, not unlike I had experienced. He went through horrendous account of the First World War, losing some of his dearest friends in that conflict. And as he came back, there's a wonderful mind and imagination studying myth and history, the way that humans derive meaning. He began to realize that his secular way of making sense of the world, a story where there is no room for God, actually was at odds with what he observed within himself and within others. You see, he had this sense that human beings were extraordinary creatures, that we had these rational ability to follow evidence through to a logical conclusion, that we were free and conscious, that we were driven by this belief in the dignity and value of every individual life, something that was very hard for him to sustain purely from a naturalistic framework. This belief that some things really are good and other things really are evil, Categories that, again, are hard to account for if morality itself is just a human invention of socio-biological evolution. And he came to realize that many of these things were either flattened by the story that he believed or explained away, making human life so much less, cutting away the soulishness of who we were. And then he began to have some conversations with some intelligent Christians. And that is not an oxymoron if you're new here this morning. He was teaching at this point, and as he began discussing with dear friends, people who he respected their intellect, he came to realize actually their story, this belief in a creator God who makes us in his image, with minds patterned after his own, with a heart that's driven to relate to others in love, ultimately with a drive, a meaning and purpose, and a moral fabric to reality, that this story shed enormous light on the reality that we inhabit, as well as on the suffering that he experienced that deep intuition that something is wrong with the world, that as he used to read a newspaper, we just scroll these days through our news feeds. So you're getting those headlines or that face-to-face -face experience of evil. This is not the way that things should be, an intuition that doesn't make sense in the secular story but was wonderfully explained by God creating us for good and now us being damaged by evil. And so for C.S. Lewis, like with me, stepping into the Christian story has all of a sudden lit up the landscape of reality in a way that just makes sense. The things you used to stumble through and bump into, now you can see in light of the Christian story and navigate it in a way that leads ultimately to life. So the second reason why bother with God is because Jesus offers answers to life's deepest questions that helps you navigate reality. And the third reason actually is really close to home for all of us, because it gets personal. Jesus offers a transforming hope that death need not spell out the end. We've been through a couple of pretty difficult years in our cultural memory. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about the looming fires. Sydney was shrouded in smoke. We had floods all down our nation. We've had pandemic and protests 
and Putin. We've watched as a global death toll has racked up in an experience of death that we can't escape. That all of a sudden starts to raise those questions. What do we do with death? What do we believe about our ultimate destiny? A few years ago, my friend Nabil was diagnosed with cancer. He was about my age now at the time. Uh, New York best-selling author. He'd been a Muslim up, uh, brought up in Ahmadiyya Islam and converted to Christianity, being convinced that Jesus is worth trusting, that it's true. It had a huge global impact. It married Michelle, had a beautiful daughter, Ayer, the same age as my son, Josiah. Aaron and I had stayed with them multiple times in the U.S., in Oxford, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, cancer. 34 when he was diagnosed. Stage 4 4% chance. And he battled. He sought every avenue open to him to get the best doctors and to pray earnestly that God would intervene. But nine months later, he was gone. You can actually journey through a series of vlogs that he made online to see that experience and his processing right up to the day before he died, where he says goodbye. This photo was taken the last time we were together, a couple of months before he died. And then he's buried. And this is where it gets real for all of us. Because what do we believe happens now? And in the West, there's two ultimate stories. The secular story would tell us that he's just gone. The lights switch off when the brain turns off and that there's no coming back. You are fish food, fertilizer for the ground. And it's what drives so much of this ignorance that we have towards death in our culture because we choose to avoid it. We don't want to think about it. We look at media, entertainment, educate ourselves in imbecility. We ignore all of these warning signs, but it's inescapable. We pursue the whole transhumanism thing. Eventually, we can upload our consciousness into the matrix. That's a way that we can escape death. Or we pour billions of dollars into potions that girls can rub on their skin or into medicinal attempts to rewire our DNA to turn back the clock. But the reality is death is coming. And if the secular story is true, there is no hope. My neighbor died during COVID, and not on COVID, of cancer. Didn't believe in God, but was a wonderful woman. And she said, I am terrified of death. She was terrified because she realized that in a few decades, no one's going to remember her. She was a single mom of five kids. She battled to raise them. What's it all going to amount to? Part of the Ecclesiastes story of just death robbing anything that we do of any ultimate significance because the sands of time wash it away and ultimately will be remembered no more. That's the future for all of us if the secular story is true. But what if death is not a full stop in the sentence of reality? What if it is just a comma, a pregnant pause that gives way to something else? Because this is what Jesus said. In John 11, Jesus comes to two grieving sisters, Mary and Martha. And at the graveside of his dead friend, Lazarus, Jesus enters into that suffering and he weeps with them. Doesn't stand aloof. He feels what they feel. This is real. Death is an enemy, not part of the circle of life. Something to be overcome, defeated. But then he makes this promise. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will live. And these ones who live 
by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because if Jesus did rise from the dead as the first fruits, the Christian story says, he's the beginning of the harvest, the foretaste of what is to come for everyone else. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then that means death is not the end. Suffering doesn't get the final word. Nabil is not gone. And it's this Christian view of hope beyond the grave, of a hereafter, of a time where Jesus will return to resurrect all those who believe in him to dwell in this new creation forever. It's this vision for eternal life where there is no more suffering or crying or pain anymore for the old order of things is gone. Behold, I come to make all things new. If that's true, man, that hope changes everything. Because no longer do you have to live here protecting your one life. It's not YOLO anymore. You only live once. No, now it's Yale. You actually live eternally. Sounds way more intelligent, Ivy League. But if you live eternally, it means that your life is not something you have to protect. You can give it sacrificially in service towards others. That's exactly what Christians have done in 2,000 years of following Jesus. Have been motivated by his willingness to give his own life for us. To go out and sacrifice their happiness, their material wealth, their security. To be able to serve those in need right around the world. It's a transforming hope. To believe that death does not spell out the end. Now, hope doesn't make Christianity true. It could all be pie in the sky when you die. But if it is true, don't you want to know? Because in Christianity, it's not the beauty of the story that's to win you over. It's that Jesus himself rose from the dead in history, leaving behind a resurrection-shaped hole to show you that he has the power to defeat death. He is the last man standing, the only one to have overcome it. But there was a reason why Jesus died. He said that he's come in John's gospel to give life and life in abundance. But the reason why he chose to die is the very reason why all of us die. Because we have a terminal condition. The Bible calls it sin. That we were designed for life with God. But rather than trust God, instead we've sought to define good and evil on our own terms. And we've gone against God's good design. We've broken God's moral law. We've become infected, damaged by evil. Evil things have been done to us, the words and actions of others. But evil things have also been done by us. And the Bible's diagnosis is that the heart of our human problem is actually a problem in our human heart. That we all think, say, and do things that don't line up with the love for which we were created. And we fail to do the good things. That when we look at the life of Jesus, the very things that he spent his time doing. And this sin has a consequence. Death. Separating ourselves from the authors of life is a death sentence. This is precisely why Jesus died. He didn't deserve it. But he came to reveal to us what we were created to be, how much we are loved by God despite the darkness that's within us, that known to the depths, we're still loved to the skies. And he expressed that love by dying for us 
by paying the cost of evil on our behalf, of bearing in his own body the marks of sin. And I know this isn't popular in our modern world, but it's freeing to think about what's actually wrong with my life. Why do my relationships keep cracking? Why does order tend towards chaos? What's with all the mess? To finally have a diagnosis as to what's wrong. There's something in here that needs to be forgiven and transformed. To finally get that, and not only a diagnosis, but to be offered the cure. And Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the cure. His death giving us freedom and forgiveness from sin, and his resurrection promising a future where we too will be raised into the new world with him. The ultimate reason why you should bother with God is because you are so profoundly loved by him that he wants you to be with him forever. In a world that's nothing like this one, in any of the dark shadows that hang over it, but it's one where you will experience not a U-shape of happiness, but just a never-ending upwards curve of life with God, fullness of joy in his presence. And that's on offer to every single person to simply accept Jesus' diagnosis and to place your trust in him, that his death and his resurrection function as payment and proof. You are loved by God, forgiven by God, being made new by God's presence as you follow him from now into eternity. That's a step that is a newcomer. If you're investigating Jesus, you can make here in a building that's beautiful, but no more holy than getting down on your knees next to your own bed or walking in the park and opening up your heart towards God. It's a step you can make now if you're ready. You've been exploring this and feel a draw towards God to place your trust in Him. Or as a space you can ask a million questions, read 50,000 books, pepper these pastors with all of your curiosities and objections and make when you're ready to put your hope and trust in Jesus. But I'd be remiss if I didn't offer a chance to do that. So I invite everyone just to bow your heads and close your eyes. If there's anyone here this morning that's been journeying, exploring Jesus and wants to make that step of putting your hope and trust in him, I'll invite you just to pray along in the quietness of your own heart. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us that you know what we try and hide from everyone else, our thoughts and our hidden world, and yet knowing all of who we are, warts and everything, you love us as a heavenly father towards earthly kids. And we pray that you would draw us towards trusting you, that we would put all of our hope in Jesus, your son, we're sorry for the things that we've thought, said, and done, and the things that we've left undone. We ask for forgiveness and pray that you'll help us to follow Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit, to live the life of love for which we were created. For those who are questioning, who haven't met you yet, like you did with me, would you reveal yourself to them? as they open up their minds and their hearts to explore? Would you meet their questions and their needs and surround them with people who can help? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much.